This is Democracy, a podcast about the people of the United States, a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're very fortunate. We're joined uh, by yet another uh, distinguished historian, this time someone who's really been a pioneer, not only among historians and scholars, but also among uh, labor activists and uh, political change agents around our country for many, many years. Uh, This is Nelson Lichtenstein, who is a distinguished professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Nelson, thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. Nelson is the director and founder of the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy uh, at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's a historian of labor, political economy, and ideology. He's written and edited a a whopping uh, 16 books. Uh, I can't keep up with all of Nelson's writing. Two of my favorite books, not just that he's written, but two of my favorite books that I impose on all students on the history of labor in American society. Uh, Nelson's absolutely essential uh, biography of Walter Reuther. Uh, It's called Walter Reuther, The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit. He was the head of the United Automobile Workers, which was one of the most progressive unions in American society mid-20th century. Uh, Nelson's also written uh, a book my graduate students love called State of the Union, A Century of American Labor, which is really a phenomenal survey of the changes in American labor unions and and work in America over the last century. He has a forthcoming book uh, called A Fabulous Failure, Bill Clinton and American Capitalism. And most recently, uh, Nelson has published an article in Dissent magazine that uh, we'll make sure to link to the um, podcast. Uh, The title of that is, Is This a Strike Wave? Uh, Discussing the current issues around labor and particularly many Americans choosing uh, during COVID not to return to their low-paying jobs uh, in many different parts of our country and what that really, really means. We're going to talk to Nelson today about how work and labor organizing have changed in American society over the last few decades, what that means for today and where, where we might be going, how this history of labor and history of work can help us to understand our current uh, COVID moment and uh, maybe the future moment we're entering into right now. Before we turn to our discussion with uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, of course, we have uh, Zachary Suri's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Soon to be, but not yet. Let's hear it. The belt whirs and then stops. The bus turns another corner and stops. The broken or the tired out or the soon-to-be but not yet important all turn around and face the door or take the clock off the wall and the time stops. The time stops and words can take back their meaning and there is something more than the cold commands pasted on the bathroom wall. And now you have forgotten the logic of the cafeteria line, and there is something colorful again in eating, in pausing for a second and looking at the bread of a field of wheat someone else had to reap. And suddenly you are a person. There is, after all that, something inside you worth smiling at, worth saying please and thank you to over a grocery store checkout counter, worth looking yourself in the eyes for and saying into the mirror, you matter. Or you are simply exhausted, and you shouldn't have to be exhausted anymore. 
That's wonderful imagery, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about trying to understand uh, why so many people are quitting their jobs today and also why we're seeing a increasing uh, amount of organizing uh, um, among workers in this country. That's a perfect place to go to our discussion with uh, Nelson Lichtenstein. Uh, Nelson, uh, how do you think about this current moment in America? Some people are complaining uh, that they can't get enough people to come work as waiters in their restaurants and as uh, people doing other work. Uh, how do you understand this moment? Yeah, good poem, by the way, Zach. Um, well, I think, you know, I make a, a couple of, um, let me put this sort of a structural and then a, then a kind of cultural um, comparison. Structurally, it's like a war, like World War One, World War Two, And in a war, what you have is uh, lots of disruption in the labor market, people moving around different jobs, some industries sort of ending almost like, you know, civilian production and others absolutely booming. Meanwhile, the federal government's pouring in tons of money uh, in deficit, you know, to sustain uh, either the war effort or here with the pandemic, sustain the economy. And so what that does is it creates tremendous labor shortages some places and big unemployment other places. And, and you can't, you know, switch, you can't, uh, play, labor doesn't move that quickly, you know. So that's what we, that's what we have, really. It's more like a, the beginning of World War II, um, you know, when the, 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 the auto production line shut down, for cars anyway, and, and they were, and they, and they revved up for, for planes and things like that. So, so, and then of course, wages are, 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 there's a tremendous demand for labor, so wages go up. So that's one thing we have, which is, uh, uh, and, I, and I think that's given rise to this this so-called labor shortage, uh, which we've had. Uh, secondly, is this cultural, cultural, moral, social? I mean, it, it was dangerous. It, it, again, the analogy to war, you know, uh, soldiers were venerated in World War II. Coal miners were too, to a degree, because that was difficult, important work. Um, and so the so-called essential workers, frontline workers, there has been a sort of sense. And, and, and here it's not just some lefty, um, you know, writing about the dignity of work. Uh, it's, it's, it's millions, tens of millions of people experience, experiencing it directly. And I think that's had an impact. Um, and so you, you get, you have this phenomena today where there has been uh, the, a, a great, uh, you know, what were they called? The great the resignation or the, or, you know, choosing, uh, you know, carefully where to work and, 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 and then, you know, that makes demands for higher wages, et cetera. So I think that that is a real thing. It is happening. Uh, some people are panicking over it. It's clearly not simply a question of incentives uh, that, you know, people have too much unemployment insurance. That clearly is not the case. Um, and so that is a, that's a, that's a, again, I think it's a, it's analogous to wartime um, and maybe the, and post-war as well to, to a degree. Once the thing is over, uh, you know, there, we had huge strike waves in 1919 and 1946. Now, we, now I, I don't think we're, we're going to get that right now, but, but some of the same sentiment is there um, about the, the role of labor in a society in general. And, and so, Nelson, if we could just drill down on so many of the excellent points you, you made. Uh, first of all, um, how do we know this is not people just deciding to stay home because they're receiving a government check? That's the stereotype, the false stereotype that's being put out there by some people. Well, how do we well, know that's actually, false? To some degree, that's true. And, and I applaud it. And that is when you have a lot of rotten work in a society and low-wage work, uh, sometimes... Uh, and, and the people are only being coerced to work to do this work because of of a lack of uh, the, the the sort of the erosion of the welfare state. And I like unemployment, by the way, is just 
desperately and terrible uh, a form. You know, we, we don't really have an unemployment system. Sometimes um, if, if someone is getting, uh, usually not a welfare check, but some form of money has been, uh, there were these, you know, individual checks that were sent out for, what, 1200 bucks, or sometimes unemployment insurance and sometimes just just money for the um, uh, to sustain the, the, the business. And, you know, yeah, at the, at the bottom of the labor market, I, I think that's an entirely salutary thing that people... <laughs> Uh, finally have a little, have some extra cash of, of a different sort. And then, of course, Biden is trying to get through the uh, these family allowances, which would be the same sort of thing. And that will be, have a tremendously uh, salutary impact on on forcing low-wage uh, employers just to, to raise their wages in a kind of massive and substantial fashion. Right. So you see that as a good thing in terms of improving. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, we, what have we been talking about inequality over the last 40 years here and, and the 99 percent and all of that? And we've been going on about that for years and, and you know, and, and a few little tweaky. The, the, the government, you know, taxation policy and even welfare policy was never enough to, to change that. What really changes is when you when you when employers and I'm not talking about here and I'm talking about, you know, the bottom half of the working class. Uh, employers, the you know, when they raise uh, wages substantially, and I'm talking about fifty percent, not not some little. That's what's going to do it. That's what's going to, and that happened in World War II. That happened in World War II. Uh, that was when the the the, the, the greatest moment of, of of equality in American incomes was World War II. Not because the rich got taxed so much; they get it somewhat, but mainly because because you know tens of millions of workers had. Good paying jobs, uh, incomes in in Mississippi, in 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 black agricultural income in Mississippi quadrupled, quadrupled during World War II. Wow. Well, I'd like to see a, a, a doubling or quadrupling of uh, of uh, you know McDonald's wages. What has the state of organized labor uh, during this pandemic been like? It seems like there's been an increasing push for labor organization, but at the same time, they seem to be facing stronger and stronger pushback. Well, it's it's basically, I mean, uh, terrible. Uh, yes, there. Yes, of course. This is this is. I mean, what, what the other phenomenal thing about this moment, a kind of extraordinary thing, is all the sort of macroeconomic indexes. You know, labor shortages, uh, money. Even now, a Democratic president who's in favor of unions. They're all favorable to to to, to labor, to organized labor. But in contrast to the situation fifty or sixty years ago. Which would create a spurt of union organizing, and you know it hasn't. And the re and the reason for that is that the that on multiple levels the obstacles to actually forming a union, whatever the sentiment of the workers are, just there's this sort of multiple, as it were, veto points. Uh, 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 the law is terrible, uh, and, and I you know that's I go into it, but it's just terrible in many directions. Uh, companies have perfected. Uh, almost down to a science, um, the 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 way in which you um, uh, stop a union, uh, you know, from being formed, even when the workers clearly want it, you know, uh, that's true. Right now, uh, um, Starbucks is demonstrating that in, in Buffalo <laughs> when when some like fifty baristas want to form a union, and Starbucks is sending in, you know. Uh, million dollar vice presidents to, to 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 stand behind the counter and stop it. I mean, it's just incredible. So that so that on those two things, and um, uh, so so we what we the, one of the most remarkable things is we haven't had a a spurt of um, 
of union organizing. Not that labor's tried to and others have tried to. It's just it's so difficult. And I made this point in that little article in dissent that that the unions that are on strike that we hear about right now, the uh, the uh, John Deere, John Deere, where the UAW right. they just rejected a contract, by the way, uh, the uh, crews in Hollywood uh, and others. These were they're they're part of unions. The unions were formed eighty years ago <laughs> during the Great Depression. <laughs> uh, we don't have a strike at, in Silicon Valley. There is no union there. You know. So, so Nelson, it's it's so important, and you know this better than anyone, for for people to understand how vital unions were to protecting workers, but also to the growth of the American economy after World War II, in particular. Uh, and you've written more about this than than anyone. Uh, yet, I'm always surprised how little people know about this. Why are unions important? Why should we care? Well, for, in terms of macroeconomics, sort of the, just general growth. I mean, they're 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 the, they're a more effective Keynesian mechanism. Uh, than any, uh, um, you know, as I said, tax policy or even even spending policy. I mean, they directly get money, uh, you know, and when they when they're successful, and that's what happened in the in the Great Compression um, from the from the 40s to the 70s. I mean, there were other reasons as well, but 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 uh, uh, unionism was one of them. And and unions don't just do things um, uh, sort of in one factory or one uh, workplace. They are political instruments as well. And they sustain. They, they were the, the the pillar sustaining uh, the New Deal order. Um, uh, in this book, I'm writing on on Clinton. One thing, I mean, Clinton. I I, I view him actually sort of less of a neoliberal and, and more of in some ways, uh, in some ways a new left you know, liberal. But what he didn't have and couldn't have and and was was a labor movement. It didn't exist or it wasn't strong enough or it it was it was in is dis, in disrepute in that period. So here he was trying to put forward create a liberal project um uh, a liberal without a labor movement. And I think and I think frankly the the problem that Biden is encountering right now with the um with the uh, uh, infrastructure, social infrastructure bill is, is in part, you know, where are the troops? Where are the troops? They, they, they don't exist. Uh, West Virginia used to be a highly unionized state. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, with uh, even Jay Rockefeller <laughs> was right. the uh, senator of West Virginia. And he was a big liberal, a good liberal. And, and, and you've had, and West Virginia's had the greatest degree of de-unionization uh, of any state in the last 40 years, it's, it's, it's toward the bottom now. Well, you know, that institution doesn't exist. So Joe Manchin only listens to, uh, to coal mine operators or, or, um, uh, Walmart or, or whoever else he's listening to. So what is your response to the stereotype, the, 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 the view that's often put forward that unions were corrupt and that they didn't help workers. This is obviously not true. So how should we understand the governance of unions when they worked well in, in those yeah. years, the forties to the seventies? No, I mean, there has been corruption of unions and you, and you can actually, um, uh, the, the recent scandal in the UAW, I think is a product um, the UAW used to be always known as a, as extraordinarily, um, almost, um, Spartan, um, a clean, you know, a, a non-corrupt union, and I. Th- and then we we've had recently this 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 corruption scandal there, um, and, um, and and I think one reason for it was it, it it followed a long period of an effort at collaboration with the auto companies, um, and that uh, that was a demoralizing, and I mean I mean that in a kind of the moral. I mean the the purpose of a union is to represent its members, in, you know, in whatever it can. And this was demoralizing in that respect and created this sort of sense of, 
of a kind of uh, insider collaboration. Um, and that happened. And that happened. That, that, I mean, that's the downside. There's a lot of, of academics that have made their careers on on arguments about uh, worker management. Uh, you know cooperation, collaboration. Well, the downside of that is corruption. And corruption, whether it's illegal or, or really the more, 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 more importantly, a kind of political corruption where uh, the unions don't do what they're supposed to do. So that, I mean, it's, it's there. Uh, the, the Jimmy Hoffa is the most famous unionist in American right. history. Uh, it's, you know, and uh, he, he was trying to have it both ways, actually. On the one hand, sometimes he could be quite militant, but other times he just completely uh, accommodated trucking firms or or, or mafia-infested locals. And uh, and he, uh, there's certain, how should I put it, there's almost a vacuum in American culture which demands a corrupt union leader. Certainly that's true in Hollywood. <laughs> Do you think there's space in our current economic moment during this pandemic for unions to play a bigger role in our economy? Yes. And he, and here's the way I think it might happen. Um, there's, I mean, it's more than space. I mean, I think it's something almost that, that Biden and some of the people around him, many of them, by the way, came out of the Clinton administration, but I think they've been, they've learned something. They've been chastened. They, they know that they, they need, they need, they need troops. And, uh, some people understand that, uh, that uh, if you want to defeat Trumpism, you can't just write off the, uh, you know, the working class. And here I don't just mean the white working class, because as we saw in the last election in 2020, a lot of Latinos and even black men, not a, they didn't all vote for Trump, but more of them than we, than we would have expected voted for Trump. So you can't just write this off as a. Uh, as uh, uh, Senator Schumer at one point said, "Oh yeah, we'll just win the suburb- suburbs and we'll let we'll let the old industrial working class go any way it wants. They can they can have to, that's a that's a huge mistake. So so it politi- there's a political necessity for it. The other thing is this, and this is a, something a, a theme I'd like to to hammer about about a bit. Of this. It's when we've had social movements that have triumphed. It's because the opponents of those social movements have come to the conclusion that it's much better to reach an accommodation with that social movement than to try to resist it. Because the the cost of resisting, uh, whether it's money or politics or public relations, is just too great. So the Me Too movement would be an example of that, you know, uh, you know, or the Black Lives Matter recently would be an example of that. When we see, you know, uh, all sorts of companies, you know, of, of celebrating their uh, their degree of, of racial or gender equality. Well, the union movement is it's now entirely legitimate. Uh, for a company to say, oh yeah, we're going to smash this union, basically, <laughs> or we don't think the unions in the in the in the best interests of our of our uh, employees, sort of like saying, oh, we don't think racial equality is in the best interest of our employees, uh, you know, that would that would be laughed out of out of out of town. So I think it's possible that in this period when inequality is so um, much in front of us, and when Unions have achieved a today a tremendous uh, public support greater than than any time in many decades. That some companies might come to the conclusion: well, 
resisting unions is going to be a real egg in our face, a real uh, political problem. I think it's beginning to happen in Silicon Valley, actually. Uh, and therefore, maybe we should reach some accommodation. Uh, that's what happened in the late 30s. Uh, that's what happened in public employment, by the way, in the 1960s with unions. So I think it's uh, that's what happened actually in, in the California uh, agriculture with, with the, the farm workers. The companies came to see that it was in their interest to recognize unions, not because it's going to increase productivity, that, you know, not, not, not some equation uh, that's going to make it economically better, but, because, but for purely political um, uh, reasons. And how do we get over then the, the negative stereotype we talked about and also the ways in which politicians, from the Scott Walkers to the Donald Trumps, yeah, yeah. seem to spend all their time bashing unions? Well, I mean, Scott Walker certainly did. Uh, uh, Trump has started off actually in a, in a kind of I don't know who, who's to say uh, <laughs> uh, the um, well, right. Well, I do think that I think I think Scott Walker's moment is over. Actually, I, I do think that's over. Um, the the, uh, uh, the the sort of the beating up on. Uh, on public employee uh, unionism, public employees was a function of, of Obama era austerity. Um, I think that's that may be over. Um, uh, I, I, undoubtedly, there's there's a tremendous amount of residual hostility to unions all over the country. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but I think you know when you have, uh, but clearly, let me say this: clearly among the the uh, the the, the twenty thirty something uh, journalistic uh, you know bloggers uh, you know and kind of who for example rushed to Bessemer Alabama last winter to cover this effort to organize Amazon I mean in, in some ways what was what I found most startling about that moment was not that that, that there was a unionizing attempt at Amazon or that Amazon won that was sort of I, I, I knew they would win frankly they've been winning anyway but that the enormous amount of attention that was given to it by the uh, you know otherwise um, uh, you know uh, coastal elites you know <laughs> um, uh, who, you know young young coastal elites and, and I think that reflects the same way in the 1930s you had New York intellectuals rushing to Harlan County to cover the coal mines you know and you right, had in the right. and in the 60s you had uh, you had uh, you know young um, uh, uh, radicals from the colleges engaged in the civil rights movement, white whites I'm talking about. Well, today, there seems to be a beginning of, of that kind of attention to, to a union movement, which doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist, but, but they're looking for it. So I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm heartened by that. No, there's a lot to that. It's a very good point. I, I guess the puzzle for me, Nelson, is that so many of the um, – white working class voters, those we'd think of in the past as being yeah. members of unions who voted for Lyndon Johnson, uh, many of them have become in that profile Republican voters. Yeah. In fact, they're the mainstay. They're the people who vote for Ted Cruz in Texas and Donald Trump in various places. How do how do we see them? How could they become part of a union movement, or is is it, are they are the is the union movement going to appeal to different people? Well, yeah, I, I did want to make two points. One is that vision, which Trump, by the way, loved to he loved to surround himself with white male, you know, coal miners and stuff, which was such an an, an, an artifact of an earlier moment. I mean, the the um, the union with the working class today is multiracial and uh, I mean, California, it's practically entirely Latino. Uh, and I mean, the blue collar working class and it's and also, of course, half women, etc. And many, many immigrants. So a the reality of what is the American working class today is it is multiracial, multicultural, and heavily women and heavily immigrant. 
Okay. So, so that's one thing. But secondly, yes, there are white male <laughs> uh, workers uh, in and out of unions, by the way, who are reactionary or Trumpites. And uh, I think there, it's like, uh, frankly, it's like the stuff in East Germany, you know, where you, you know, the, the rise of, you know, uh, or other places, uh, industrial, where you have industrial decline in Northern England, where, you know, you have this, this, um, this sense that, well, uh, traditional institutions of liberalism didn't work. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll move, do, go to, move to the right. So you have to make the traditional institutions of liberalism, whether it's the union or the, or, or the state or, or whatever, make it work. And Biden's trying to do that. Uh, you know, that's why uh, there's been a certain left wing enthusiasm for this guy. Uh, it seems to be, you know, whether, and whether that, you know, happens or not. Um, so I think, I think that's true, but I, you know, I would, I would make m- more, I would, push i'm not for writing off the white working class or such as it is but i but we forget we really forget that the the working class today the people who are working in amazon working working in mcdonald's working in walmart working in your local hospital they are women people of color and immigrants i mean that's the working class today right right and and Many of them now are working from home, right? I think of people have, at call centers. Well, the well, not well. The ones who are have sort of white or pink collar jobs, they are not the not the ones who are doing the service economy. That's part of their the, the, what's been put all put upon them. But yeah, there is people at home. Yes, that's absolutely right. Case. And so, how do we think about that? How how does that? Can we imagine a union movement for people who are in, as you call them, pink collar, right? Yeah, relatively low paying jobs at home, taking care of children at the same yeah. time. Do they fall into this as well? Well, they, they do, well, that, yeah, they're harder to organize, obviously, uh, when you have a scattered uh, workplace. And of course, companies aren't stupid, so they they kind of construct work which is fragmented or fissured. That's the reason. That's the word where they, they don't you aren't even officially a, a, a an employee of, of a firm. You're, you're you know you're you're working for a subcontractor. Uh, that's that's harder to do. It's still true. It's still true. What what Marx and 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 and, and everyone else said. You put people together in a workplace. And you have, you know, something is possible there um, it, it, rather than when they're scattered about. And I still I don't quite think that the uh, the uh, Internet and Zoom and the world of Zoom quite brings people together as much. Although I have to say that, that you, you've had some remarkable things in Silicon Valley. Um, and, and let me just say something about that. But the, the motivation of unionism, it doesn't have to be for dollars and cents and, a, you know, and a better you know, dollar an hour and whatnot. The people in Silicon Valley, when you had 60,000 people at Google who walked off the job because they didn't like the, uh, the, the, the gender politics of the leadership or, 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 their, or they, they, they even forced, I think, Google to, um, to reverse uh, some of its policies on, on, on uh, helping, was it um, the Pentagon, I believe, right. uh, you know, identify people. So you could, you, what, whatever the issue is that brings people together collectively, I mean, that's what helps create, you know, form an organization. And um, uh, the problem is we, that, that, that they, we still have um, so many obstacles to the actual legal f- formation of these organizations that, that's still there. And um, uh, it, that's, that's, that's part of our problem today. And, and I wanted to ask you about that in particular. What are the obstacles we would need to remove in order to allow for what you would see as fairer unionization? Well, there's a number of, of just things. For example, uh, the capacity of, of employers to intimidate workers uh, in, in a variety of ways, uh, captive audience meetings, uh, uh, firing them and, and saying the reason we're firing you has nothing to do with the union, but we're firing you anyway, even though you're a unionist. Uh, 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 the d- d- delay, delay, delay. Uh, that is uh, the, the uh, when, you, when you finally do a uh, majority 
go for a union, uh, the, the companies just delay the first contract and that demoralizes people. So th- those are just a few of the things. Now, now the, the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, um, uh, you know, does reform many of those things. Um, the Republicans are completely against it, so it doesn't have a chance in Congress. Uh, but, you know, but, but I want to get back, even if you pass the, the best possible uh, liberalization of the um, labor law, it wouldn't work unless you really frightened employers into the realization that it's in their best interest to to to, to recognize the union. I mean, in the 30s, eh, the, the you know, revolution was a was a word tossed about. We weren't going to have a revolution in America, but we were going to have a radical movement. And a lot of employers said, "Oops, let's not do that." And uh, and 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 there and then and then actually, what they did, they rushed to to sign contracts with the American Federation of Labor, the more conservative of the of the two big labor movements in the 30s. Right. So I'd be happy right. to have. A Walmart sign a contract with the most conservative trade union that they could find right today. <laughs> it's a that's a, a great great example. So so we always try each week, um, Nelson, to bring this historical perspective that you've shared with us. As again, as no one else can, we try to bring that uh, into the present and really think about how it can be used by people who are uh, are out trying to make a difference today. And so, what would be your advice to uh, actually many people? Uh, Zachary and I know here in Austin, Texas, a fast-growing city, one yeah. of the fastest-growing cities in the country, yeah. where there's a lot of efforts at union organization because there is a labor shortage and there are many workers who are still being poorly paid despite that labor shortage. Yeah. And there's a great deal of money and all the major corporations are here from Google to Dell uh, yeah. to Samsung and others. What, what's your, what are your recommendations to them if they're trying to help workers through unionization today? What should they be doing? Well, I think obviously publicity is the first thing. And I think we do have a lot of talented uh, uh, sort of, as it were, uh, organic intellectuals of the working class. Uh, and that would include most of the people in the, the academy who are kind of have been sort of semi-proletarianized anyway over the years. And I think that um, therefore a, a kind of uh, to and that's been happening and I'm for, I'm for doing more of it to 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 publicize what's going on and to to um uh, to 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 see these issues um, that are there in terms of class issues, and not so much well they, um, they are ra- racial and class issues are inter you know inter inter imbricated together no doubt about it but I think there's sometimes we 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 fixate on the the the, the specifically racial or, or ethnic character of, of the of the working class oppression and don't see it as, in, as a more generalized um, um, uh, class one and secondly is is you know naming and shaming this has been a you know this has been a tactic of the left for, for decades and I'm for naming and shaming uh, c- companies uh, it, you know whether in Austin and elsewhere uh, employers that are you know clearly being egregious or hypocritical or, or what have you, but I don't. But I have to say, uh, Jeremy, I don't have a magic uh, solution. Um, sure, uh, I, 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 I'm not Lenin who is getting off the train. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I did. I wish I did. But, but I, 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 you know, anyway, that's what I. Well, that's that's super helpful because I think uh, one of the issues is ignorance. I mean, I find that uh, there are many people who care about inequality but don't think about labor issues, yeah, and I think right. one of the, as you said, one of the yeah, great well, outcomes. And, and is the, that and people the union, are thinking. Yeah, and the union movement is is. 
is 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 a mechanism for the for the yes. abolition or the reduction of inequality, and I think it's the most effective one and the most direct one. You know, one of the problems with with uh, federal policy or even state even when state policy, it takes so long to get itself down to the to the you know people who 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 are the beneficiaries and then when they when they get it they don't know why it happened but a union is right there they have to struggle for it they know why it ha- why you know they're getting a dollar an hour more they know they understand it and it ha- and 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 unionism has a tremendous impact on consciousness not because they they listen to speeches or get leaflets but because the very act of doing something together with someone else is a consciousness transforming um thing which 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 puts the a certain kind of uh, narcissistic individualism uh <laughs> you know it, it reduces that and 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 you begin to see a kind of collectivity i mean we see that today with this terrible thing on the on the vac- vac- the resistance to vaccination people don't see the, the the collective necessity of that but when you when you ha- when you're in a union if you're on a strike you you know damn well that everyone has to stick together if you want to win Right, right. It's it's community building, or the, I guess the phrase used now, social capital. Right. Nice. Yeah. Zachary, as as a young person who watches all this and talks about these issues, I know how, how do you think about unionism? Or, or do you share Nelson's view that this is a, a direction we need to think more about today? I I, I do a hundred percent. I think part of the problem, though, is that the the image of the union that we're still operating with today even people my age it, it is is the the like Rogers and Hammerstein like 1920s union of the pajama factory it's not it's not a modern image and i think we i think we need to we need to update we need to right. we need to bring our imagining of unions up to date I think that's right. Excellent point, Zach. That's absolutely. I agree with you 100. percent Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Nelson, this is why we need you to keep writing, so yeah. so you can help us update our exactly. image of the unions, exactly. right? Exactly. Jackie, write that up, Zachary. That's really good. That's a good point. <laughs> well, I think this is a perfect uh, note to close on. Uh, Nelson, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with us. And I'm in, I want to encourage all of our listeners to read your books and your articles uh, as we're trying to bring a renaissance and attention to the workplace. Uh, in our country today. So thank you, Nelson, for joining us. Uh, you're welcome indeed. And Zachary, thank you for your for your poem. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.